0: It is great to see all of you here this morning. You are a sight for sore eyes. Are you happy to be here this morning? Amen. Such a blessing to uh, be here, gathered with one another and worshiping God and hearing from His Word, doing what a church is supposed to be doing on a regular basis. I do want to take a few minutes of time to go over a few things with you before we get into the Word uh, for uh, this morning. First of all, I am so grateful for this beautiful day. God is so good. Uh, A week ago, the forecast for today was 102 degrees And we saw that forecast trend lower uh, and lower day by day over the past week. Until now, uh, the forecast is a high of 91 at 3 o'clock today. So I'm so grateful for God's goodness in providing this beautiful morning for us to be able to gather together and worship Him. He didn't have to do that, but He did, and it's a sign of His goodness also, as many of you know, Riverside County was moved into the red tier uh, on Tuesday of this past week, uh, the red tier of our governor's reopening plan for the state of California. Uh, this happened a week earlier than we were anticipating, and uh, our positive test result numbers actually look better than they did the week before, so things are trending in a very good and positive uh, direction. With our county in the red tier, we're able to begin to make use of some of the indoor uh, space, up to 25% of capacity. So we'll be able to use uh, indoor space for some of our weekly enrichment events, uh, including some of our equipping school classes, like our youth class will be starting up two weeks from today. They may be using the courtyard uh, but as some of our other classes begin to open up, as we go lower and lower in age, we'll be able to use some of our indoor uh, spacing. But we're also grateful to have use of the courtyard uh, that we will be making use of uh, during the week and, and even on Sundays. You can look forward to hearing more about uh, some of these ministries in the, in the coming weeks. Also, our care group is launching off to a fresh start next Sunday, and this is as good a time as any for you if you are interested in being a part of a care group to consider getting involved. Uh, And I know many of you um, who are not involved in a care group have already been heavily recruited, and that's a wonderful uh, thing. Our church has uh, about… 15 care groups which are small groups that meet in various places throughout Riverside and Moreno Valley just the surrounding area to hear and these groups come together to pray together to fellowship together to sing together to process God's word together and to celebrate the Lord's table together on a weekly basis beyond that the members of these groups serve together and bear one another's uh, burdens. And I know that any number of our care groups would love to have you uh, join them and be a part of them. These care groups represent a very rich venue in which to experience the blessings of community here at Cornerstone. If you're not a part of a care group, please go by the care group table that is to my left uh, up here. Uh, after this morning's service, and get your questions answered, and even to sign up to be a part of one. Our care groups meet at different times and places. Some of them meet on other days of the week than Sunday. So we trust that you'll be able to find one that is a good uh, fit for you. Also, our men's and women's Bible studies will be starting up the second week in October. Our men's Bible study will start the Tuesday evening. Of October the 13th, which is two weeks from this Tuesday. And our women's study will start the Thursday night of October the 15th, which is two weeks from this Thursday. And those will be taking place here on the church campus. Our men's Bible study will be resuming our study of the topic of forgiveness. uh, And our women's study will resume their study of the book of Ephesians when they begin meeting. So, we encourage you to consider being a part of either our men's Bible study on Tuesday night or our women's Bible study on Thursday nights that are beginning October 13th and October 15th, respectively. And then lastly, our annual election meeting was held here in the parking lot several weeks ago after one of our Saturday evening worship services. And we put before you in that meeting a number of names of individuals that the elders believe God wanted to serve as elder and deacons and deaconesses for the coming ministry year that we are now in. And we're happy to tell you that all of the names that were on the ballot were overwhelmingly Uh, affirmed by our membership, which is always just a wonderful joy to observe. I think our lowest vote tally for any of the nominees was 99%. Uh, I'd like to read off the names of these individuals uh, here near the beginning of our ministry year so that we can be praying for them as we launch into our ministry year. For the Office of Elder, for a three-year term, Paul Kumamoto. For Deacons and Deaconesses, which are one-year terms, the names I'll be reading them based on their ministry role, Administrative Assistant Chris Kearns, Agape Team Members Daniel Ben Shadler, Sean Feely, and Mike Martinez, Awana Ministry Leader Seaburn Boone, Church bookkeeper Gina Gall, care group leaders Daniel Ben Shadler, Ray Sean Bobo, Scott Cantino, David Contreras, Brian Kearns, Chris Kidder, Jonathan Langley, Dave Schilling, and Moses Tay. In house catering team ministry leader Yersa Hansen, Children's Church toddler leader Chris Kidder, college and career ministry leader Justin Chow, communion team. Leaders Mike and Michelle Beck, Facilities Team Leader Cordell G, Men's Ministry, Leadership Team, Scott Cantino and Jonathan DeMiel, Church Secretary, Kelly Lamone, Technology Ministry Leader, Ebe Hansen, and Women's Ministry Leaders, Kim Davis, Melissa Kaufman, Ruby Kimball, Lynette Kumamoto, and Donna Vincent. If we could have these individuals stand and let's express our appreciation to them. Thank you to these individuals for your willingness to serve the Lord and to serve our church body. And I want to just take a moment before we get into the Word today to pray for you. Uh, and for us as a church. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, You are the sovereign Lord of the church, and because You are the Lord of the church, we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We thank You, Lord, for bringing us through much over these past several months and for bringing us to this point in our ministry year. We're so blessed to be here. We praise you for your work of grace in the life of each one of our church officers, Lord, and we thank you for their willingness to serve. We ask that you would lavish your wisdom on them and that you would anoint them with power from on high and that you would bless and prosper each one of them, Lord, as they serve your cause in the days to come. Protect each one of them, Lord, from disqualifying sins. Help them to love well and to lead well and help each of them to display the heart of Jesus Christ to those that they lead and labor alongside of. Help them to be examples of humble godliness in every respect. We pray, Lord, that you would cause many lives to be touched through their ministry, through their labor, and through the labor of every single member of Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church, Lord. May You cause Cornerstone to grow in stature, and may the length of Cornerstone's stride grow longer, and may the reach of our ministry expand as You desire, so that we as a church, together with all other churches around the globe, may do our small part in furthering the administration of Christ in the world, bringing help to many people in their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, Lord, are the senior pastor of Cornerstone. So we ask you through your spirit to give wisdom to the elders of this church as we move into the fall and the winter. Guide our steps and help us to stand ready to follow your lead wherever and however you choose to lead us. Help us as elders not to run ahead of you nor to lag behind. Help us to lead well and to shepherd well and to equip your people well for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And we pray these things for us, but we also pray all these things, Lord, for sister churches around the world For those churches that are operating freely under the light of freedom and for those churches that labor under the darkness of persecution, help us all, Lord, every church across the world to shine its lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that desperately needs the light that issues forth from the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for hearing this prayer, Lord. We ask that you would bless us now as we open up your word and look into your most holy word. Have your way with each of us in the coming moments. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2 for our time of study in the Word this morning. We're doing a series through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study uh, through this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, and my goal is to cover verses 8 through 11 of Revelation 2, and the title of the message is Encouragements for a Fearful Church. Encouragements for a Fearful Church. In Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8, Jesus speaks to the Apostle John, and He says these words, "'And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last,' who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's holy word. You know, many people uh, prefer to receive short emails. We're bombarded by emails nowadays, and many people prefer short emails as opposed to lengthy ones. And none of us likes receiving criticism in an email that someone has sent to us, especially if they have CC'd other people on that email. How many of you have ever received an email like that from someone? Well, if you're one of those who love short and positive emails, then you will love Jesus' letter to the church of Smyrna. Of Christ's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor that we have here in Revelation 2 and 3, His letter to the church of Smyrna is the shortest of these letters, partly because Christ has nothing negative to say about this church, so there's no space to take up with criticism of anything about them. There's only one very mild corrective in this short letter, and that is Christ's instruction for them to stop being afraid. It's evident from what Jesus says to the church of Smyrna, that this church is suffering at this particular time, which is around 95 A.D. In fact, it seems that many of them have lost everything because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And to make matters worse, they seem to know that an even greater suffering is on the way. And they're anxious about what the next shoe to drop might be. And in this letter, Christ speaks to them in the moment they find themselves words that are designed to help them and to give them the perspective they need in the midst of their present and their future sufferings. In the process, Jesus takes the subject of suffering very seriously. In fact, in this short letter of just four verses, we encounter the following words. Dead, tribulation, poverty, blasphemy, Satan, suffer, fear, devil, tested, tribulation, death, and death. As Jesus grapples earnestly and honestly with the circumstances of these Christians and speaks to them the words of encouragement that they most need to hear. The irony of such language and of the Christians in Smyrna's situation is that from a physical standpoint, Smyrna was the most beautiful of all of the cities of Asia Minor. It was a beautiful city situated about 35 miles north of Ephesus on the western coast of what is modern-day Turkey. But Smyrna was also a city known for its patriotic, fierce loyalty to Rome. And it was rewarded handsomely by Rome for this loyalty. In 195 B.C., Smyrna became the first city in the ancient world to build a temple in honor of the goddess of Rome. Later, in 23 B.C., Smyrna won permission over 10 other Asian cities to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. Smyrna was where he wanted the temple to be built in honor of him. And this strong allegiance to Rome made Smyrna exceptionally difficult to live in as a Christian. Dr. Robert Thomas tells us that during the Apostle John's day under the reign of the emperor Domitian Listen to what he says. Emperor worship was made mandatory for every Roman citizen. Failure to comply meant death. Each year, every citizen had to burn incense on Caesar's altar, after which he was issued a certificate. To be without a certificate, as must have been the case for Christians obedient to Christ, was to risk discovery and the death penalty." Robert Thomas goes on to say this, It is safe to say that nowhere was life more dangerous for a Christian than Smyrna. If anyone refused to confess Caesar is Lord, along with burning of incense to him, he was considered disloyal and became the object object of persecution by the local and imperial governments." You add to this the fact that there was a large apostate Jewish population in Smyrna that hated these Christians and were more than happy to accuse them of all sorts of crimes in order to arouse the authorities against them. And you have a city that was most unsafe for Christians. Now, the name Smyrna may sound weird, To you, in fact, it feels weird rolling off my tongue, Smyrna. You may think this is the first time that you've encountered this word in the New Testament, but it is not. In Matthew 2, we're told that the wise men came to Jesus and presented Him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and Smyrna. Smyrna is the Greek word for myrrh, and the association of Myrrh, with suffering and death in the New Testament, makes it quite poetic that the church of Smyrna is suffering at this time, with the theme of death figuring so heavily in these verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. What I want to do, here's how we'll break down our study, is we'll observe six acts of Jesus designed to encourage a suffering church that is fearful of more suffering ahead. And by the way, you can find the outline in the same uh, link where you have the worship lyrics if you just go down further in that document. Six acts of Jesus to encourage a suffering church that is fearful of more suffering ahead. Number one, here's how He begins. He presents Himself to them as the everlasting conqueror of death. He presents Himself to them as the everlasting conqueror of death. Observe what He says in verse 8, and to the angel or to the pastor of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. We saw Jesus speak of Himself as the first and the last in chapter 1, and he's doing so again here, and calling himself the first and the last, Jesus is telling the Christians of Smyrna that he is the first cause of all things, and he will outlast all things. He is the one at the beginning and at the end of history, from whom and for whom all of history exists, and He controls all of it for the sake of His church. This is why Jesus immediately thereafter describes Himself as the one who was dead, literally who became dead and has come to life. Jesus faced the horrors of crucifixion, Inflicted on him by people who wanted to get rid of him, yet that was not the end of him. He was actually killed, yet he came back to life and now lives forevermore. This is why he describes himself not simply as the first, but as the last. I mean, what else can the devil do to this one whom he has killed, yet who has come back to life to live forever. As for us, who else would we rather look to than this one who took the worst suffering that could be thrown at him, yet he died and came back to life? And who better to speak to these suffering Christians in the church of Smyrna than the one who suffered to the fullest degree possible and now stands in resurrected glory on the other side? Here's a group of suffering Christians operating under the shadow of death who are anxious about the suffering that lies ahead of them. And what does Jesus think they need to hear from him first and foremost? He deems that they need to hear him speak truth about himself. There are other things they need to hear from him, but their need starts here with a look at Jesus who is the first and the last, the one who died and has come back to life. This is also our greatest need when we are suffering, when we're fearful, when we are anxious. Our greatest need is to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to behold Him, right? When we look at the direction at the direction that our society is heading nowadays and we find ourselves fearing the worst, what do we need to do? We need first to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to look full into His wonderful face. We don't just need words. We don't just need advice and counsel, and we don't definitely need to be looking at ourselves in the mirror and telling ourselves that we are enough. We need to see Jesus as He is and see that He is enough. This is why Jesus begins by giving the Christians in Smyrna a look at Himself at the beginning of this letter. Jesus introduces Himself with the two descriptions that we see in this passage, and then notice how He ends. He says, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. And before we even know what Jesus is going to be saying in the coming verses, we ought to be poised to receive it because we know the one who it is coming from. Jesus has impeccable credentials and every right to speak to us regarding any matters that we as a church or as Christians are facing. He has something to say to the Christians in Smyrna and to us but what will he say this leads us to the second act of Jesus designed to encourage a suffering church that is fearful of more suffering to come number 2 he assures them that he knows their situation he assures them that he knows their situation observe what he says in verse 9 as he points out yet another truth about Himself in connection with them. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So, ultimately, guys, Jesus now has given them three truths about Himself. Number one, He's the first and the last. Number two, He was dead but has come back to life, and number three, he knows their circumstances with complete knowledge. As for what he knows, he says to them in verse 9, he knows three things. I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews. You guys have heard the song, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. Nobody knows, but He knows my sorrows. A Christian can actually sing those words. Even if no one else knows the trouble that we are in, we can be confident that Jesus knows our troubles. He knows our sorrows. Here in verse 9, Jesus says to these suffering Christians in Smyrna, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. The word tribulation speaks of troubles that come upon a person as a result of their faith in Christ. It speaks of troubles that crush or afflictions that impose a pressure upon the person suffering to give up and deny God and to disobey His will. And Jesus is saying, I know your tribulation. He then says, I know your poverty, which no doubt resulted from their tribulations. There are two Greek words that we find in the New Testament for poverty. One of them speaks of someone who barely manages to meet their basic necessities And then there's the person who is so poor that he is destitute and cannot meet his own needs without charity from others. And this is the word that Jesus uses here. Literally, Jesus is saying, I know your destitution and beggarliness as a result of the persecution that has come upon you. These Christians were no doubt reduced to these circumstances because they were marginalized by their culture, making it impossible for them to make a living. They were probably not able to even buy and sell in the marketplace because they refused to swear allegiance to Caesar and to confess him as Lord. Commentators also suggest that these Christians may also have been the victims of mob violence and looting. And these Christians would have had no legal standing in court to get compensation for harm done to them or to even get their goods back. So they are economically and legally destitute, and Jesus speaks to them and says, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. And keep in mind, guys, that these words are coming from someone who's gone through enormous tribulation and poverty himself, all the way to death on a cross. In fact, write this reference down in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we're told that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became what? Poor, so that we through his poverty might be made rich. And that word poverty and poor. That is used in 2 Corinthians 8-9 is the same word that Jesus uses here in Revelation 2 to describe the circumstances of these Christians in Smyrna. Having experienced tribulation and poverty Himself, Jesus says to them, I'm not just aware of your circumstances, I know your tribulation and your poverty the way a fellow sufferer would know the sufferings of another. You are not alone. There is someone who understands fully and empathizes with you, and that person is me. Keep in mind also that the one talking here is the one who confronted Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. All Saul was doing was persecuting Christ's church, and yet Christ says, you're persecuting me. To persecute Christ's people is to persecute him because he feels so deeply what his people feel whenever they suffer. And guys, it's from that depth of sympathetic feeling born of love that Jesus says to these Christians, I know your tribulation." And your poverty. Yet, even though Jesus sees their tribulation and poverty, he knows something else about them. He says, I love this, but you are rich. In other words, he's saying, you may be troubled and poor in the things of this world, but that is not what defines you. You are rich. You are rich because you have me. And all the blessings that come to you through me, you have the forgiveness of all of your sins. You have my perfect righteousness draped upon your person. You are sons and daughters of the Father with full rights and privileges of sonship in relationship with the Father. And you have an eternal inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven You have treasure laid up for you in heaven, and nothing can ever separate you from my love. You are rich indeed. From this verse, we learn that Jesus has perfect eyesight, and He simultaneously sees physical and spiritual reality with perfect clarity at all times. And I love the balance here. Jesus doesn't turn a blind eye to these Christians' material suffering and poverty and only speak about how rich they are spiritually, nor does He ignore their spiritual wealth and only look at how materially poor they are. He sees the full truth of both their poverty and their riches, and He comforts them by saying, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but I also know that you are rich. In other words, I know how spiritually rich you are, even in the midst of your material poverty. He also wants them to know that he knows who their enemies are and what those enemies are doing. He says... And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The blasphemy that he's speaking about could be blasphemy against Christ, and I'm sure it involved that, but it primarily involves the slanderous accusations being spoken against these believers by these unbelieving Jews. These apostate Jews hated these Christians because of their faith in Christ, so they slandered them viciously at every opportunity, accusing them of crimes that would bring government authorities against them, leaving these Christians off-balanced and harassed at every turn. Yet even though the slander of these Jews against these Christians turned the authorities against them, They didn't turn Christ against them. Jesus is still on the side of these accused Christians that everyone else seems to be turning against. As for these Jewish slanderers, they were biological Jews, and so they said they were Jews, but Jesus says they're not. In fact, Jesus says they're nothing more than a synagogue Of Satan. They are of their father, the devil, and the desires of their father they are doing, and in posturing themselves against Christ's church the way that they are doing now, they're nothing more in the mind of Jesus than a synagogue carrying out the activities of God's supreme adversary, Satan himself." These Christians of Smyrna are going through a lot right now, but Jesus is comforting them, encouraging them with the assurance that He knows their troubles, He knows the poverty they are going through, but He also knows the wealth that they possess even in the midst of their troubles. He knows who their enemies are and what the enemies are up to, and He also knows the troubles that lie ahead of them. And this brings us to the third act of Jesus' design to encourage a suffering church that is fearful of more suffering ahead. Number three, He announces their coming troubles. He announces their coming troubles. Listen to what He says to them in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. When Jesus tells them, do not fear, He's literally saying to them, stop fearing what you are about to suffer. This tells us that they were afraid. Jesus sees their fear. Evidently, the church of Smyrna was not just a suffering church, but a fearful church that has a sense of impending doom about what lies ahead, and Jesus speaks to them and says, stop being afraid. And He doesn't say this because their problems are going to go away anytime soon. In fact, He assures them that more trouble is on the way. He says to them, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison." Surely, it's going to be the earthly authorities who do this, yet the devil's going to be the one who is pulling the strings and causing their imprisonment to happen. As to when it will happen, Jesus says the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, which means it's going to be happening in the very near future after they receive this letter. Some commentators suggest that the kind of imprisonment being spoken of here is a death row kind of imprisonment, the kind of imprisonment wherein a person is being held until their execution. And I think the context here indicates that this is actually very likely. So think about what Jesus is saying to them. Don't just skip over this. He says, Stop being afraid of what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison for the purpose of eventual execution. So stop being afraid. Would those words comfort you? Probably not. So why? Why should they not be afraid? Well, partly because Jesus knows what's coming which means that he's in control and because this whole thing is being allowed by him as a test of their faith. He says to them, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And the word that is translated tested could either be translated as tempted or tested Certainly, the devil is going to be casting them into prison in order to tempt them to abandon their faith in Christ. But it's also true that God is allowing them to be thrown into prison so that they will be tested and come forth approved by God as true believers in Him. The devil will impose the suffering on them in order to get them to betray Christ but God will allow this time of imprisonment so that they will come forth as gold, tested gold, and be shown to be true believers in Jesus. And Jesus' encouragement to them is that they're about to endure a test in which they have opportunity to glorify Him. Another reason these Christians in Smyrna should not fear Is because their time of imprisonment and tribulation will last for only 10 days. At the end of verse 10, Jesus says to them, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Some writers and commentators are not convinced that the expression 10 days should be taken literally, but I would agree with those commentators who see no reason for us not to take these words literally as speaking of ten actual days, Jesus seems to be telling the Christians in Smyrna that some among them are about to be thrown into prison, and upon being thrown into prison, they will experience tribulation in their imprisonment for a week and a half, and then the tribulation will cease. The tribulation may cease because they will be released but most likely it will cease because they will be put to death, after which point all of their sorrows and troubles will be forever over. Either way, the encouragement here is that their suffering will not drag on for weeks and months and years. It will come to a climactic end, and compared to eternity this time, Of tribulation will be very short indeed, and some of them listening to Jesus' words here will will know that some of us are about to see Jesus very, very soon. And that's good news. So, Jesus has told them to stop being afraid, but what should they do positively? This leads us to the fourth act of Jesus designed to encourage a suffering church that is fearful of still more suffering to come. Number four, He gives them a call to faithfulness backed by a guarantee. He gives them a call to faithfulness backed by a guarantee. Listen to what Jesus says to them at the end of verse 10. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The fact that He tells them to be faithful until death seems to indicate that some of them are going to die for their faith at the end of this 10, year, 10 days of tribulation and imprisonment. So Jesus calls them to be faithful all the way through to their dying breath. To be faithful is to remain steadfast in obedience to Christ and faith in Christ rather than abandoning Him and worshiping Caesar. Caesar. And Jesus is telling them to be faithful in this way until death. And this call goes for those who will be imprisoned and even for those in the church who will not be. They all need to have a mindset wherein they each are willing to die for Jesus if necessary. No matter what they must endure along the way. Or no matter what torture or tribulation or persecution or loss of loved ones they must endure along the way. Jesus then gives them a promise. He tells them to be faithful until death. And then He says to them, and I will give you the crown of life. I have something for you. I will give you the crown of life. Jesus here is speaking from the other side of the death that He experienced And he speaks to these believers from the other side and tells them that he's waiting for them and that he's holding a crown of life in his hands. And he promises them that he will be standing there to greet them when they die. And he assures them that he will personally hand to them the crown of life that he gives to all who showed themselves faithful to Christ all the way until death. The Greek word that is translated crown is the word stephanos, stephanos, from which we get the name Stephen. This word speaks of a wreath placed upon the head which served as a symbol of triumph and honor. A wreath like this would be given to a victor in the games or to a soldier to honor him for bravery in battle or to a citizen to honor Him for some civic achievement. And in the Christian's case, Jesus is saying that He will give the faithful Christian the crown of life. We could translate this, the crown which is life, meaning that the wreath He's speaking about is simply a metaphor for the fullness of life that Jesus is going to give to the believer in heaven. Having said that, I think it's very likely that Jesus will actually give such believers an actual wreath for them to wear as He welcomes them into heaven, a wreath that will crown their head and represent great honor among the saints in heaven. And this, guys, is why these Christians do not need to be afraid, because though some of them will undergo imprisonment, tribulation, and death, They're going to live on the other side of death and experience honor. In fact, on the other side of death, Jesus will greet them and give them a gift, and this gift will be a crown of victory that comes with fullness of life together with Jesus for all of eternity in heaven. And remember that this promise is coming from the one who was once dead but has come back to life to live forevermore. and who received honor from his father in the process. And he's now wanting to pass that honor on to his people. Jesus has told these Christians of Smyrna to stop being afraid. He's told them to be faithful until death. Yet he gives them yet another command in verse 11. And this brings us to the fifth act of Jesus designed to encourage a suffering church that is fearful of still more suffering to come. Number five, he encourages all to hear what the Spirit is saying through him. He encourages all to hear what the Spirit is saying through him. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Jesus really wants His readers to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to them through the words that He is speaking. Sometimes we can get so caught up in our sufferings and in our fears that we don't hear what Jesus is saying to us. So Jesus urges the Christians in Smyrna and all of us to listen to what He is saying. And using the language that He uses here, Jesus is saying several things at once. He's saying that He wants the Christians in the church of Smyrna to hear everything He's just said to them. He also wants them to stick around and listen to what He's going to be saying to the other churches, plural. He also wants the members of all the other churches of Asia Minor to be listening in and hearing what he is saying to the church of Smyrna so that they no doubt can be praying for the church of Smyrna and supporting them in any way that might be needful. And so that they too, even in these other churches, might be ready themselves to face death with courage when their time may come. And calling upon those who have an ear to hear what Jesus is saying here, Jesus is also calling upon us today to hear His words to the church in Smyrna because we have much to gain from what Jesus says to them We, too, should take encouragement from His words in the midst of our sufferings, and we, too, should be ready to die for Jesus in the days to come. And when we hear His words to the Christians in Smyrna, we should be reminded that even today around the world, there are Christians who are suffering persecution and who have to live under the threat of death for their faith. And they can use our support and our prayers. I read this week about a Pakistani Christian named Asif Purvaiz, who was in the news this past week. Seven years ago, his boss in Pakistan tried to pressure him to convert from Christianity to Islam. And when Asif refused, his boss trumped up charges against him and accused him of sending text messages that blasphemed the prophet Muhammad, something that Asif never did. The Pakistani authorities threw Asif into prison where Asif has languished for the last seven years away from his wife… And his four children. And after seven long years in prison, Asif was brought before a court a couple weeks ago. His attorney defended him and argued for his release, but the request was denied. And instead, the court sentenced Asif to death. Meanwhile, Asif's wife has been diagnosed with cancer, and his four children are struggling to find food and any means of income, relying on pennies from local Christian charities for survival, hearing reports of his family's suffering has left Asif mentally broken and distraught over his family and the suffering they're enduring while he's in prison and can't do anything about it. This is so heartbreaking to read about and to hear about. But guys, there's other people like him and the members of his family. We here in the United States are not suffering as Asif and his family are suffering, but there are Christians around the world who are. And if we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us in this letter to the church of Smyrna, We will be moved to think about these brothers and sisters and to pray for them who are suffering for their faith and seek to help them in any way that we can. Looking at our texts for today, the Christians in Smyrna have already received a lot of help from Jesus. If they can look to Jesus in the midst of their suffering and know that He knows what they're going through And that he is the one who was once dead, yet now lives again forever. If they can heed Jesus' call to stop being afraid and to be faithful to death and to truly hear what he is saying to them, then they will show themselves to be overcomers who will be rewarded in a future day. And this brings us to the final act of Jesus designed to encourage this suffering church that was fearful of more suffering to come. Number six, He guarantees eternal safety to the one who overcomes. He guarantees eternal safety to the one who overcomes. Observe what Jesus says at the end of verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death the word overcomes means to triumph or to be victorious over satan we learned two weeks ago from revelation 12:11 that you overcome satan through the blood of the lamb and through the word of god which then becomes your testimony in other words you overcome satan by putting your trust in jesus christ and his blood that was shed for you at the cross you overcome Satan, by remaining faithful to Christ in the face of persecution all the way to death. And the one who overcomes in this way, Jesus says, will not be hurt by the second death. Yes, you may experience hurt on some level, Jesus says, but you won't be hurt by the greatest danger of all, the second death. So, we hear Jesus say that, and we're left asking, what is the second death? We all know what death is, but what is the second death? Well, John explicitly answers this question for us in Revelation 21. You can turn there or just listen. In that chapter, Revelation 21, John says, "...then I saw..." A great white throne, this is verse 11, and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, John says. In Revelation 19.20, this very place is called the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. In Revelation 20, verse 10, this place is described as the place where the devil and the beast and the false prophet will be cast, and we are told that they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. In Revelation 14, 9, this place is described as the place where those who follow the Antichrist will spend eternity, where they, according to verse 10 and following, will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger, and be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of God's holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever. And ever, and they have no rest day and night. And this, guys, is the second death with all of its unmitigated horror that will come to those who do not put their trust in Jesus Christ and overcome Satan through the blood of the Lamb, but instead choose to remain. In their sins. But according to Jesus' words here in verse 10, the one who overcomes through Jesus Christ absolutely will not be hurt in any way by this second death. Not a single flame from the lake of fire will so much as singe a single hair on the believer in Christ nor will they feel the slightest blast of radiant heat that emanates from that place. They will catch no whiff of the brimstone of that place. In fact, we miss this in the English, but there's a double negative in Jesus' promise here in verse 11. A good translation would have Jesus saying, "'He who overcomes will not at all be hurt.'" by the second death. If you're here this morning and you do not want to be hurt at all by the lake of fire, by the second death, you have opportunity this morning to come to Jesus and to believe in Him and to call upon His name for salvation. In Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus speaks to you and to all of us, and says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that person whom all of us should fear, that person whom you should fear, is God. Yet this God, the Bible tells us, has sent His Son into the world to die on the cross for our sins, and then raised Him from the dead and ascended Him to His own right hand. And this God tells us that if we come to Jesus in our bankruptcy and in repentance over our sins and believe in His Son and call upon His name, God will forgive us of our sins and make us His children, and He will protect each believer in Christ from the lake of fire. And if you want that protection from the judgment you deserve for your sins, I plead with you to fly to Jesus, to run to Jesus, and to find shelter in Him. Jesus is the only person who can save you from the second death, He's the only one who can save you from the lake of fire. You know, the gospel is so much more than a fire escape but it is a fire escape according to the teaching of bible of the bible it is the greatest and the only fire escape that there truly is you know as we wrap things up commentators marvel at how short this letter to the church of smyrna is it's a short letter but it's packed with meaning and packed with encouragement Encouragement that actually seemed to have its intended impact upon these believers in Smyrna. We know this from the record of church history. Church history tells us that when Jesus spoke these words to the church of Smyrna in 95 AD, there was a 20-year-old man in that congregation named Polycarp. Polycarp went on to grow in faith and became the bishop of the church of Smyrna. Yet about 60 years after this very letter we've studied this morning was written, Polycarp was arrested for his belief in Christ and for his refusal to worship the Roman emperor. Eventually, the Jews of the city incited the authorities against Polycarp And he was called before the authorities in a stadium in which many of the inhabitants of the city of Smyrna had gathered. The proconsul spoke to Polycarp in front of the crowd and said to him, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And Polycarp, who is now 86 years old, Looked at the proconsul and said to him, and I quote, "Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? In reply, the proconsul said, "I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent." Polycarp said. Call the animals in. The proconsul said, if you think nothing of the animals, I'll have you burned. Listen to Polycarp's response. He looked at the proconsul and he said, and I quote, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. You see, Polycarp knew the greatest thing to fear, which is God's eternal punishment. And he knew that he was safe from that fire. A temporary fire at the stake was nothing compared to that fire. So Polycarp says, bring it on. So they did. They tied Polycarp to a stake, gathered wood around him, and even though, get this, that it was the Sabbath day, the Jews helped to gather sticks for his burning. Before his fire was kindled, Polycarp prayed, and he said these words to God. He said more than this, but let me just read these to you. I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day And this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs, in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, among these martyrs may I be accepted this day before you as an acceptable sacrifice. The fire was lit, Polycarp was slain, and he was known thereafter among the Christians as the twelfth. The 12th martyr of Smyrna, indicating that 11 others had been martyred before him, some of whom Jesus is very likely referring to in our very passage today. All in all, we find great encouragement in this text for any time of suffering that you and I may find ourselves going through. Jesus knows our troubles, He knows our present troubles, He already knows the troubles that we're going to face tomorrow or any time on the path ahead of us. He stands ready to give us the help that we need in the midst of any tribulations. And the primary gift that He gives to us in all of our troubles is the gift of Himself and the gift of being able to behold Him. Guys, no matter what circumstances or trials that we may find ourselves in, we will never find ourselves in a location where we don't have a clear line of sight to see Him. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear any evil because He is where? He's with us. His rod and His staff comfort us. He even prepares a banquet table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil And serves us such that our cup is left not only full but overflowing even in the midst of our sufferings. And He stands ready to greet us at the other end of the valley of the shadow of death. Welcoming us into the house of the Lord forever. And it is this shepherd who speaks to the Christians in Smyrna and all of us in our text today. And finally, our passage for this morning also gives us a little bit of perspective on our current situation here in our country. As the fabric of our society is becoming increasingly torn and hostility against a Christian worldview becomes more pronounced, we actually have legitimate grounds for being concerned about what lies ahead for us as a church and our society on the road to come. But from this passage, we learn that we should not be afraid, whatever the future holds. Christ is the first, and Christ is the last. He is the beginning of history, He is the end of history, and anyone who sides with Him will find themselves on the right side of history. We have nothing to fear because He is faithful. And He calls us to be faithful even unto death, knowing that He stands ready to meet us on the other side of death, ready to give us the crown of life. All that is left for us to do is to keep looking to Him to be faithful unto death, to Him who is faithful unto death for us. And let's pray and ask God to help us to do just that as a church. Let's pray together. Lord, if there's any here this morning that have never bowed before You and beheld You, Lord Jesus, at the cross, dying and shedding Your blood for the forgiveness of sins, I pray that you would bring them to the foot of the cross this morning and that you would give them the gift of repentance and the gift of faith, that they would be able to, to look to you, Lord, and believe in you and call on your name, to stop calling on their own name and to call upon your name as the only way, the only truth, and the only life through which they may be saved. I pray that you would help us as a church to be faithful in these days in which we live and help us even now to be nourishing ourselves in our most holy faith, that we would stand ready to be faithful in the coming days, whatever the future holds. And though troubles may await, though sorrows may afflict, Though we may find ourselves reeling with pain, the pain of suffering and persecution in a future day, may we face the future with courage and with hope, with an absence of fear, because we know that you know. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that you hold tomorrow, and you hold us in the palm of your hand and if we stay faithful to You, if we believe in You and trust in You, we will not be hurt by the second death. And then may our only orientation be, Lord, to love You and to share this saving gospel of salvation through You to others, that others might see the light that issues forth from us and be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ and experience eternal salvation through Him. I pray this for us here at Cornerstone. I pray this for every true local church, Lord, throughout Riverside, throughout California, throughout our country, and throughout our world. May many souls be saved as we lift Your name high and point people to You you who are the first and the last, you who was once dead and now you live forevermore to save us to the uttermost. It is to you that we pray and cry out this morning in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.